Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, July 4th, 2018. Happy Independence Day to all our listeners. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us this morning. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, we're going to be discussing the 50th anniversary of the promulgation of the encyclical Humana Vitae by Pope Paul VI. Humana Vitae is Latin for on human life. Now, the first part of our show, of course, we're going to be talking about my pilgrimage to the Holy Land. You went down to Palestine, Texas this Palestine, Texas, yes. I Uh, think this is the other Holy Land he's talking about. Well, uh, I was going to mention that, you know, coming from Bryan College Station, moving to Israel is sort of like moving from the Holy Land to the Holy Land. Yeah, yeah. But some uh, people think that. Some people uh, think that. I have heard that it referred to as such. We want to welcome all our listeners here in KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station. Also, our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena Waco. And also, our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. And you've already heard from my two compatriots in the uh, broadcast studio, uh, Dennis. Just couldn't help ourselves. We had to just throw that in, didn't we? Thaddeus. And Thaddeus is here also. And welcome. Good Uh, morning, everybody. Happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. And since we're saying Happy Independence Day, I need to tell you that we are pre-recording this. We are not actually in the studio on July 4th, so that means we're not going to be able to take any phone calls. I think Dennis is probably mowing his lawn right now or working in his garden. That is a distinct possibility, either that or Uh, he's sleeping and the kids are out mowing. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be, that would be preferable. That's and my, for sure. And my house is probably getting pelted with golf balls at this point by all the golfers out on July 4th. Happy 4th of July, everyone. Yeah, it's great to be here, 4th of July, Red Sea Roundup. So thank you, Deacon Mike, for pre-recording this so we could have a great, fresh show on the 4th of July. Yes, and um, as I mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, – the pilgrimage I was just recently on uh, with a group from Sacred Heart Parish in Austin, uh, led by Father Alex Caudillo. Uh, it was organized by uh, Deacon Dan Lupo and Deacon Guadalupe Rodriguez from um, the Diaconate Formation Program. And so there was several people that are in formation, a couple of us that have already been ordained, and then um, several relatives and other people that uh, went with us. It was a group of 33, and it was a wonderful experience. But before we get into that, I think Dennis had a couple of things that he wanted to mention. Well, we've got something coming up on July 16th, which is the feast of our—actually, it's on 14th, but the feast day, it's in celebration of the feast day of our Mount— 
Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And we have a, a Mount Carmel Rosary Guild here in town in Bryan. That is amazing. They have multiple facets of that Rosary Guild. They make rosaries. They, they certainly pray and offer uh, reparations and pray for the mercy of our world. And one of the things they do is they make brown scapulars. Thaddeus and I had the privilege of presenting to this group, I guess it wasn't quite a year ago, and they gave a report after our presentation about their activities. And Thaddeus, I I was astonished. I thought, Mm. okay, yeah, a a group of ladies, they're making a few hundred scapulars a month. I mean, their numbers were closer to the tens of thousands. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, my jaw hit the floor, and and it made me, in our small radio apostolate, feel small, that they're impacting thousands upon thousands of lives across the world, and they ship them anywhere they're requested. And so, literally, um, I was just amazed at something that two or three dedicated people making, I know they've got a few others that help them, but there's two or three or four dedicated people that are making these and they're just, they're just cranking them out. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And that's a group of, of people who, when you're around them, you are just touched by their meekness and their humility. And to see the spiritual fruits of that that comes out in their their dedication to one another and their dedication right. to Our Lady, and they're doing all that that good spiritual work for their brothers and sisters. Well, they certainly it's are al- always welcoming new members, but I, I guess the point I wanted to make out is that just a few handful of people can really impact the lives of so many, and so it's pretty. It's another great, amazing. Um, picture of the Holy Spirit at work here in one of our listening communities. But they have an event coming up on the 14th, as I was mentioning, and that that is, do you have the details it's on after that? the 815 Mass at St. Joseph's Church in Bryan. Uh, Monsignor McCaffrey is going to conduct an investment in the brown scapular and a blessing of those brown scapulars in honor of the feast day of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And so the the guild is going to provide the booklets and the scapulars for uh, that ceremony and blessing, and it's made by their uh, brown scapular aso- apostolate. Excuse me. And for more information, you can get in touch with Ida Cervantes at seven seven six five zero zero nine, or you can email her at ies zero three five four at AOL.com, and we've got a PSA running on the station here in Bryan, too, to, to give you that that information as well. But if you're in one of our other listening areas and this type of activity interests you, something that you can do from uh, the confines of your own home, uh, just a, a home ministry, but have impact on thousands of people, this, is, this would be a great way for you to help out. So mm-hmm. give Ida a call. Mm-hmm. What's her number one more time? Seven seven six five zero zero nine. That's nine seven nine area code. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, thank you all to the ladies and gentlemen that are involved in the uh, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Rosary Guild here in the uh, Bryan College Station area. And then, Dennis, I think it's appropriate for you to make another uh, announcement on another way that just a few dedicated individuals can make a huge impact. Talk about the wonderful gift we got last week and. 
just right. reiterate our continuing need for dedicated people to to get involved here. We had a family that we had a family that stepped up during our religious freedom week push for asking for monthly donations, and this family in the Bryan uh, College Station area that chose to remain anonymous. They wanted to offer a $1,000 matching challenge. So if there's a family out there and you've been impacted by Red Sea Catholic Radio, we still have that challenge uh, match on the table. So any one family or individual that's out there that's listening and have been touched by the work of a few of us here at Red Sea Catholic Radio, thanks be to God through the Holy Spirit, uh, we're asking for you to match that $1,000 gift as a way of thanking Red Sea Catholic Radio for providing you so much information on our religious freedoms, how they're being challenged in our country, and this is just another expression of of our religious freedom to be able to have Catholic radio, wonderful Christian radio in our communities that talk about the topics, yet also respect the human dignity of all sides and of all the people that represent those sides specifically. So it's a great way to, to spread our Christian faith and to promote the message of Christ through His Church. So we're also asking uh, monthly donations. We are behind the eight ball a bit on uh, our monthly donations. And so we're asking, if you're listening and you can't give that $1,000 uh, match toward this incredible family, we uh, toward their offer, we're asking you to give what you can. We had in this last Religious Freedom Week uh, someone that's offered a $5 a month donation, thanks mm-hmm. be to God, and we've had someone that signed up for a $60 a month donation, and mm-hmm. we've actually had an underwriter that's rolled in just recently. So we are asking those of you that are interested in underwriting Red Sea Catholic Radio and are interested in donating to our monthly efforts, uh, we are still short. Um, do you want the approximate amount? Sure. Go ahead. Ahead. We're looking at about 2714 <laughs> so it's pretty approximate. I can't yep. give the sense, but yeah, it's it's approximate our monthly deficit. And deficit, when I say that, that means our operational costs that are above and beyond what we're actually bringing in per month. Yeah. And so what we're looking for are those monthly donors, our regular listeners, to step up to the plate and commit online at redcradio.org. That's red, the letter C, radio.org. Click on that donate button and you can make a monthly pledge or actually a monthly donation, start it right there online. And it'll come out monthly and it'll enable us. And you also be a, can be a part of the Immaculata Gift Society, Recurring Gift Society, which gets you some great Red Sea extras. It also gets you some information and updates from our station and opportunities to meet socially with our group. Uh, but it, it gives us financial stability that we need to keep Red Sea Catholic Radio going throughout our network of Bryan College Station, the Central Texas area, and in Palestine. And let me say this, too, and, and gentlemen, you can attest that I'm not saying this with my fingers crossed. Um, we would be overjoyed to see a flood of $5 a month donations. Oh, because be what God. that says, that's somebody who's saying, this is what I have, but I believe that my contribution can make a difference, and I'm not going to be deterred by telling myself or letting the the evil one uh, whisper in my my ear that well you can't really make any difference with your little your little bit don't even bother it's not it's not worth it you're not a you're not a big time operator so don't bother making any uh, any contribution no every little bit helps and so if we saw 
a flood of $5 donations per month, we would be ecstatic about that. We would indeed. So on this 4th of July, we ask you to support religious freedom by supporting Red Sea Catholic Radio. One more time, redsearadio.org forward slash donate. And let's talk about the Holy Land. We're not talking about Palestine, Texas now, Mm -mm. but I am very interested to know a lot more, um, not only in this episode, but maybe even in future episodes and in future homilies by the great deacon here about his trip to Palestine. So I'm going to let you two take it from here. So yeah, when were you there? We left here on uh, June 6th and uh, returned on June 16th. Okay. And um, sad to say, a large portion of the first and last day are sped on an airplane. Sure. So some of, the, some of that gets robbed just by getting over there. Yes. But it's a lot easier to get over there than it was in generations past, for sure. Yes, and especially after being in Israel and looking at the countryside and looking at what it would have taken just for, say, Mary to go visit Elizabeth. Mm, mm -hmm. The airplane ride was easier. Yeah. (laughs) Now, when one thinks of Israel, when one thinks of the Holy Land, I think the first type of geography that comes to mind is desert, but actually it's more of a, of a very graded, uh, climate. Is it, is it not? Yes. And, uh, lots of mountains, yeah. lots of hills. Uh, matter of fact, I don't remember much of a flat spot other than on top of a mountain where someone graded it to build a encampment for mm-hmm. Herod. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, uh, lots of, what would be considered arid climate, yeah. uh, except for the monsoon season. But there's a lot of cedar trees on the mountains, a um, lot of dormant grass which comes up immediately after a rain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it is a varied climate. It's this time of year, of course, it is hot. But uh, what we think of you know, as desert really, uh, other than, of course, right around the Dead Sea, mm-hmm. isn't really what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about, did you stay in the state of Israel entirely, or did you cross over into some of the other neighboring states? And then what were some of the major cities and sites that you saw? Well, uh, we stayed uh uh, in Israel, okay. uh, we landed at Tel Aviv, and our first uh, stay was in Tiberias, which is a town uh, located on the Sea of Galilee, or Genezaret, uh, or also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, we had excursions to Nazareth and okay. uh, Caesarea, uh, and uh, Magdala and all the towns that are on that northern edge of the Sea of Tiberias or Sea of Galilee. And so, and after we, and just since you mentioned Mount Carmel, we actually were up on Mount Carmel, although Mount Carmel is actually a range of peaks. So uh, the specific Mount Carmel varies, uh, but we did get to... uh, go to what is called Stella Maris, uh, uh, Star of the Sea, and it is a church dedicated to uh, Our Lady, but also it ha- 
commemorates the cave that uh, Elijah was hiding in when he heard uh, the uh, uh-huh. okay. thunder and earthquake and uh, things. So, But uh, after we finished the uh, Sea of Galilee, we went down to Bethlehem and stayed there, and the rest of our excursions were from that launch point to uh, Jerusalem and, of course, uh, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and uh, the uh, Shepherd's Field, which Mm -hmm. was one of the other things we were talking about, topography. When we think of uh, field, we're thinking a flat meadow. Mm -hmm. No, still hilly. Terraced architecture, (laughs) I mean, agriculture. Yes. Uh, So the sheep would have been on a slope the whole time. And uh, the shepherds would have stayed in a cave that's into the slope. We actually went into one of the caves that commemorates the spot where the shepherds heard the announcement of the angel that Christ Mm. was born. Mm. And the murals in it were absolutely astonishing. Mm -hmm. uh, Portraying the first announcement by the angels and the shock of the shepherds and then the elation of the shepherds and then the visit, visit to the... Uh, manger. It was really beautiful. Was that your favorite sacred moment? Did you have a, or did you have another one? No, my favorite sacred moment by far was we had the opportunity to say mass in the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre. Oh my! And um, it's a extremely tiny space, and as I mentioned, there was thirty three of us. So trying to crowd thirty three people into that space. Um, now there is an antechamber. Uh, the area of preparation, and then the actual tomb. And so we spent most of the time in the antechamber while Father and the deacon were in the tomb saying Mass. But of course, there's an opening between the two. And then we went two at a time into the tomb to venerate the actual uh, place where Jesus' body would have laid for those three days in the tomb. That's stone. The stone, mm-hmm. uh, which is covered by marble, but there's a reason for that because everything there is sandstone. And after the last 2,000 years, there would be nothing left if everybody got to touch, touch the actual uh, space. So they put a slab of marble on top so that it would last. That's, an, that's incredible. Uh, but uh, just being there. And one of the things they told us is that because they try to allow as many people to say mass there as possible, you're allowed 25 minutes, so you're not able to do a homily or anything like this. And the thought in my mind was, I am in the tomb. I'm listening to the readings. I don't need a homily. Mm -hmm. I am living the homily. And so uh, that was the most spiritually awe-inspiring moment of the entire trip. And how about your favorite profane moment? Uh, favorite profane moment, uh, I don't know. Um, there was probably a couple. Uh, one was um, um, stopping at a, a small cafe and having croissants and uh, German beer. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think the thing that struck me the most that sort of put the spiritual and the profane into conflict was um, the strife 
mm-hmm. in the area. And I'm not just talking Palestinians and Jews and Palestinians and Jews and Christians. Mm-hmm. Even the Christian communities in the Holy Land, mm-hmm. it's a constant struggle. Uh, we went into the Church of the Nativity and there's oil lamps hung everywhere. Okay. And they have colored Christmas balls hanging off of them. Okay. And the question is, why are there colored Christmas ornaments hanging off these? Well, because each group, the Coptics, the Armenians, the Orthodox, and the Catholics have their own oil lamps. And woe be unto anyone that actually touched the oil lamp belonging to someone else. So they have to mark them to make sure no one accidentally touches someone else's oil lamp, or if one of them leaks, has the audacity to clean up under the oil lamp belonging to someone else. If you clean it, you buy it, basically. uh, Yes, it's now your job for the rest of... In perpetuity. In perpetuity, that is now your job. Oh, boy. And this point was driven home by... uh, There is a ladder outside one of the windows in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that has been there for 400 years because no one has responsibility for removing it, and so no one is allowed to touch it because they can't tell which group it belongs to. So it has sat there for 400 years. The Amazing. saying about can't we all just get along, scary thought is sometimes we can't even get along in the holiest sites of the world. <laughs> right. Well, Deacon, we're certainly glad that you're back, and I, I hope that, like Dennis said, we have uh, its fruit for many more um, conversations and homilies. I know it's going to inform your—you've said before it's going to inform how you view the Scriptures and understand the Scriptures um, probably permanently. Yes, it's going to be a continuous— change in how I listen to what is being said in Scripture, because you now have a much different sense of what it would have looked like, the distances, and just the difficulty of moving from one spot to the other. And so uh, I'll never listen to the gospel readings again, and I would encourage everyone, if you have the ability, once in your life, make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. All right. Well, we're going to come back, having heard a little bit about that pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and talk more about the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae. And we'll be right back on the other side of the break. And we are back. Welcome back to the Red Sea Roundup. As I mentioned, today we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the 50th anniversary of the promulgation of the encyclical Humana Vitae on human life. This is an incredibly important uh, encyclical because it addresses something that is 
paramount to our understanding of humanity. We have two options. We either see ourselves as totally independent beings, that, as Casey versus Planned Parenthood says, is responsible for basically determining its own vision of reality and living their life accordingly, or we are created in the image and likeness of God, and that provides us meaning and purpose. And the choice is, which of the two do we choose to follow? Thaddeus? Deacon? What is some of the historical context that preceded Humana Vitae? Because uh, this is one of the things that I find fascinating. It didn't just grow out of a vacuum. No, no, it certainly didn't. Um, so just so everyone's clear, so this Humana Vitae is a papal encyclical. It's released in July of 1968. It actually hits the, kind of the public consciousness in this country July 29th, 1968. Um, it's a, it's a document that has, um, it, a papal encyclical can have, can be infallible. It can contain infallible teaching. It doesn't always, but it can. It has that status in the magisterium of the church. That concept of the magisterium is going to be, probably come up a lot in our discussion. Can I throw it back to you real quick? Sure. And just give, give a overview of what we mean when we say the magisterium of the church? It sounds, you know, imposing. And Yes, but really, the easiest way to explain it is that the church sees three levels of authority that are indispensable to each other in passing on the truth. We, of course, have sacred scripture, but we also have to have some way of taking that sacred scripture and moving it from the written page to the lives of the people that are intended uh, to live it. And that's tradition. How do we use what we have been given in our daily lives? Right. Well, if we're going to have that, who actually determines what we follow? And so we have the magisterium, the authority, the teaching authority of the church to say this is and this is not. Right. Magi, magister from the Latin magister, right. teacher, right? Teacher, yes. And it's, uh, that's uh, what it is. It is the teaching of the church. And if you take e any of them away, you lose our faith. Right. It, it just disappears because if you just have the scripture, you have, what is it now, 1.2 billion Catholics, each one determining for himself what that means. Right. Well, right. you soon have nothing that is correlating to each other anymore. Right. And that's not what Scripture tells us. It says that we should be one. Well, how are we one if we can't agree on anything? And so we can have Scripture, but we need someone to tell us, well— just starting out, what scripture is? Where did we get it? Which ones belong? Which do not? And then, of course, you have tradition. And again, the magisterium has a role in the tradition, but the tradition evolved from the apostles living out what they had been handed down by Jesus. Right. 
And the tradition was actually there before we had scripture. Right. And so all three of those are vitally important. So when we're talking about magisterium in a papal encyclical or anything of the sort, an exhortation or something, it is the magisterium speaking to the church as a whole, the body of Christ, as to where do we go with what we've been given. Right. And even when the Pope teaches, it kind of what gets left unsaid in a lot of common discourse is that he's teaching in union with all the bishops of the whole world. And that's another kind of example of the magisterium of the church. Yes, the teaching authority of the church is never just one person. The Pope, as the successor of Peter, as the one sitting on the chair of Peter, has the voice of authority, but that authority is in conjunction with all the other apostles. Right. And so they come together, they determine the direction that they need to go on a certain issue, right. and then the Pope places it in the hands of the people. Right. And so some of the immediate backdrop to Humanae Vitae in 1968 is a... A uh, clear example of that union of the Pope and the bishops teaching together in union, which was the Vatican Second Vatican Council, 1962 to 1965. So that's in the immediate backdrop to the issuing of Humanae Vitae. But I I kind of think that in one way we have to go back to the two biggest catastrophes of the first half of the 20th century. Okay, and that's the First and the Second World War, right? Those were so enormously destructive in terms of money, in terms of material, in terms of life. Um, More civilians were killed in the Second World War than were combatants. And after 1945, so World War I is 1914 to 1918, World War II is 1939 to 1945, so after 1945, you also have two new superpowers that take over the world stage from the European great powers, right? So England, France, Germany. Now it's the United States and the Soviet Union, right? So you have the whole geopolitical stage is, is turned upside down after centuries of European preeminence, right? I think that those two conflicts were so important because they didn't just um, cause all that material destruction and destruction of human life, but they really wrecked Europe's confidence in its own civilization and in its ancient faith. And I think those two wars together are what made those societies begin to turn their backs on the Judeo-Christian heritage of Western civilization. That coming into the 20th century, such a faith in progress and such a faith and belief in the um, the superiority of, of European civilization, Western civilization, and all that it had accomplished in the sciences and the arts and, and that whole cultural um, piece— that the whole thing. And then what does it what does it culminate? It what does it lead to? It leads to these the two most destructive wars in human history. What there 
there was that that gnawing feeling of that the gnawing belief of there must be something rotten at the core of the whole European project, you might say, the whole Western project. Would you agree that perhaps the Age of Enlightenment had initially started that questioning of... Certainly. And then the situation after the two wars, actually because it began a questioning of the validity of the trust in the European thing, historical heritage of yeah. Christendom. Yes. That perhaps enlightenment was actually pointing in a better direction than this. I think you could, if you wanted to even take your historical vantage point back there, you could even say, um, okay, so the enlightenment sort of proposed turning away from faith as the sole um, explainer of, of things, and let's put all of our trust in reason, okay? And the world, and so then European Western civilization kind of set off on that tack with, with the religious tradition still trailing along and still very much informing the ordinary lives of people and the social conventions and um, that whole cultural matrix that holds a society together. But then the two world wars, I think, destroyed that faith in reason and also just did a number on religious faith as well. For um, when the when the horrors of the gas chambers were unveiled and that the heart of Europe, Germany, and Austria had perpetrated those crimes and that the other European civil uh, societies, even though they were under the thumb of the Nazis, were, were implicated in, in those crimes going on and people saying, staying silent and being collaborators that wreaked enormous havoc on the the moral fiber and confidence in the societies of of Europe. Um, so I think you you kind of come out of you 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 get to 1945, and I think it's this feeling of well, faith seems to be bankrupt. Now reason is bankrupt. What else is what else is, is there? And that's how you can have an Albert Camus come out of post-war France with nihilism, right? This belief that nothing matters. There's there's no meaning to any to anything. And these philosophical and so this all takes this all begins at the intellectual heights of, of Western civilization. And so you have these philosophical movements like post-structuralism and deconstructionism and relativism, nihilism, I mentioned, that begin to say there's no basis for objective truth, there's no basis for absolute truth, we can't have confidence in really knowing anything about um, the world outside of us, and so therefore we have no basis to make any kind of moral claims about anything, 
um, and on and, and on and on like that. And, and then that begins to, because of the communications media on the scene, radio, then soon to be television, movies, in addition to book publishing and magazines and newspapers, I think you see much more rapidly than in other earlier ages of human history that trickle down of those ideas into the popular culture, into the popular mind. So that's, I think, one one piece of it here. Then, of course, I don't think that you can, if you turn your attention to the United States, you have a little bit, you have some of that going on in the intellectual uh, stratosphere but you have some other important movements that I think they're going to inform the response to Humanae Vitae. Um, one of them is that one of the uh, one of the people that I was was reading, trying to get myself uh, informed about this about this episode, he made a very interesting point that. You know, the generation of the 40s and the 50s in the United States Catholics, that was a very um, traditional Catholic milieu. It was, it was a very strongly um, orthodox Catholic population and culture, on, at least on the surface. But it had, what had grown up was a... Um, the Catholic, the episcopacy here in the United States, especially the Catholic bishops, had developed over the years a little bit of an authoritarian strain in them, uh, to the point where, on the eve of the the nineteen sixties, there was a maybe too much of a shepherding of the flock with the attitude of, "I'm the bishop." So you do what I say just be just because, and not as much uh, real shepherding and and explaining and and guiding, and that started to as as the Catholic population here in the United States, you know, because the big wave of Catholic immigration was what eighteen forty to let's say nineteen forty, right? And as those generations of Catholics get more acculturated to the United States, and they begin to kind of live and breathe that those American ideals of of individualism, of um, freedom. There's an attitude of wanting to be th- democracy, okay, representative government participation. There, there's those growing it's it's growing pains of and of wanting to kind of at least be in be more in on the on the um, decision, at least knowing why something's being being asked. But the point that this this priest historian makes is that it created this resentment, especially amongst the theologians who were being trained in the United States, um, that uh, that kind of broke out into open, Dissent when Humanae Vitae is published, and this 
Catholic resentment, the stream of Catholic resentment, that was in turn fed at the same time by these larger currents in American society of rejection of conformity, rejection of tradition, rejection of social convention already going on during the 1950s, you know, starting with the beat generation, the emergence of rock and roll, the campus free speech movement in the beginning of the 1960s, um, the counterculture in the 60s, mid-60s. So all of that is this kind of potent mixture that's that's going to feed into these theologians uh, believing that they can can take a stand against Humanae Vitae when it's published in 1968. How is that sounding so far? Sounds uh, excellent, and I think uh, to add to that a little bit, given the end of World War II, the increase in the growth of the economy, the lack of a need to be responsible. You didn't have to uh, watch your food allowance. You didn't have to worry about having to go to war. All these things, Mm -hmm. these freeing influences Mm -hmm. on society Mm -hmm. contributed to the sense that we're going to let our hair down. We're going to do the things that are fun. Right. And when you have these challenges to authority, you usually end up with people going, okay, authority is going to try to rein this in, and so you're going to get a pushback. Mm-hmm. And so society wants to be allowed to make their own decisions of what they would like to do, and you're seeing this now in the 60s just prior to Humana Vitae, that more and more people feel that they should be allowed to make these moral judgments right. by themselves. Right, and so American society obviously had, had lived through the Great Depression, then the um, effort to win the Second World War, and now coming out of the Second World War, enormous material prosperity. Um, new a pace of change um, dizzying in in its scope. And uh, the uh, lives, the ordinary lives of people, their um their standard of living is is growing exponentially. Um, new, you know this is this is when you really have automobile culture really kind of embed itself in American life. This is when you have the, the emergence of suburbia and the, the, what we think of as the American dream, you know, owning your own home, owning a car or two, um, a salary, a pension, um, and then all the plethora of different entertainments. Um, this is when you get television culture, uh, embedding itself in, in, in American society, not to mention movies and radio that had already come along earlier in the century. And, um, you know, we like to think of the, the 1960s as the, that's, that's usually when historians kind of date the, the sexual revolution. But we have to remember that already there had been something, something similar in the 1920s coming out of World War I. The, you know, the flapper era, the jazz age, um, 
the automobile had come on the scene and that that had started to change uh, mores. But um, it was put on hold a little bit by the the Great Depression and, and World War II. But it comes, it it really comes back uh, strong to another level with the prosperity of the of the 1960s. Now, I think another thing that's tied to that, and the it, it's interesting that we talked about the first and second world wars. Um, that belief in uh, reason had been destroyed in some ways, the confidence in progress. Yet, at the, I, I think it didn't make quite the same impact in the United States. I think there still was a great deal of confidence in um, science and, and technology to improve our lives and to make the world better, and still a great deal of uh, belief in experts, um, statistical experts, social science, the social sciences, the na- the natural sciences. Um, that's something that had had really started with the in the, like the late nineteenth century and grown with the progressive era, the growth of of government bureaucracies, growth of large corporations, um, and I think that in some ways that confidence in in experts or believing that that uh, experts in some field are the kind of definitive voice that began to occult enculturate the American Catholic Church and that I think in some ways you can see the Catholic American Catholic theologians kind of coming out of that tradition or trying to sit themselves in that tradition of well we're the we're the moral experts of the the church. We have these credentials. We have these um, degrees, and we should be the ones who are listened to and uh, define church teaching. And so, coming out of the Second Vatican Council, there was much talk of the magisterium of the theologians and the magisterium of the the people of God, the census fidelium, although that was being taken somewhat out of context and and used improperly. But definitely a very much belief that theologians were properly the ones to um, hold forth on these great matters of of faith and morals. Yes, and I think uh, that... In addition to what you were talking about, the emphasis on science, it was an emphasis on science without the question of morality entering into it too often. Yeah. It was, if it's good to do because we want this, then we don't ask too many questions about should we do it right. in the first place. And I think uh, morality... Uh, played a big role in the viewpoint of the theologians that they were able to determine the moral value of this from somewhat of a utilitarian aspect, that this was beneficial to the individual families, Mm -hmm. and therefore this was, you know, a moral good. Right. And I think, you know, 
there was an orchestrated response to Yumana Vitae, and maybe we can talk about that in the extra segment. Um, and if you're an Immaculata Society member, you can you can have access to that conversation. But maybe in the time we have left here today, Deacon, you can take us through the outlines of what did Humana Vitae say, what did it reaffirm, um, and what did it predict? And yes, uh, I think since we've laid a little bit of the groundwork leading up to this, the expectation leading into Humana Vitae was that the Catholic Church was going to announce that there were no moral issues with contraception per se in the individual family trying to space out children. And so uh, we need to be aware that uh, society looked totally different at the time. The notion of the world looking the way it does now where marriages are in decline, uh, most children are born out of wedlock, uh, these sort of things were never even dreamed of at the time. Right. And so the discussion of contraception was almost entirely on the basis of use in a marriage. That was the presumption. The, right. And so the expectation leading up to this was that the Vatican was going to say, given these circumstances, that it was going to be okay. Yeah, and if I can jump in real quick. Sure. And that's because... St. Pope John XXIII had formed a pontifical commission to study the question of contraception. And he founded it, he started it shortly, I think in 1963, so like a year after the beginning of the Second Vatican Council. And it was mostly composed of theologians, some of the leading theologians of the time, in addition to some, some churchmen. And I think at different points, there were even some Catholic married couples that were a part of that commission. Um, and somewhat similar to our media environment today, there were leaks that came out of this commission that it possibly was, intentional yes, leaks. Yes, that it was going to reshape or reimagine church teaching on these questions. Go ahead. And uh, so, what Pope Paul VI did, starting out in Humana Vitae, is first lay the groundwork for the fact that we still need a moral authority. The church is the moral authority. It, that's its role is to guide the world we live in in moral questions. Because again, it is the best suited uh, entity to do this. So Pope Paul the Sixth starts out with you know one is the magisterium competent to do this, and of course the conclusion was yes, it is. And two, does it have the moral authority to do so? And again, the answer to him was uh, yes. So, and we have to remember, this is prior to Pope uh, John Paul uh, the Great, Saint Pope John Paul the Great's uh, wonderful teaching of theology of the body. That's right, that's right. So, this was all new to people. The notion that marriage has a purpose, that our bodies have a purpose— and that that purpose is realized to its fullest in marriage, and that marriage has a procreative and a unitive aspect to it, that the couples become one, and that um, 
they are in that coming becoming one create the possibility of children and so um if we do something to compromise either of those aspects in marriage we're not staying true to the original design and the designs laid down by god right um and so the church is very uh, insistent that God has laid a purpose in the world he has created, and if we don't understand the purpose, we don't understand our role in life. And so uh, he lays out the uh, responsibility of couples in making sure that they understand what marriage is in the first place, what the role of the couple is in the marriage, and how important it is to be free to make a lifetime commitment and to give yourself fully to the relationship, to not hold anything back. And this is one of the things that's uh, vitally to understanding why the church uh, took the stand on contraception, because contraception by its meaning is you're holding something back Mm. in the giving of one to the other. And so, um, but it's interesting, we're not going to have enough time to go through it completely, but uh, some of the predictions he made in um, uh, laying this out are fascinating. He said, first of, we should first consider how easy it will be for many to justify behavior leading to marital infidelity or to a gradual weakening of the discipline of morals. And this played out in spades. We soon decided that if there are no consequences to the marital act outside of marriage, then it must be okay. Mm-hmm. And we have gone forward from that. Um, and the other point he makes is that um, we have to understand what we're like as human beings. Um, especially the young are so susceptible to temptation that they need to be encouraged to keep the moral law. And so he's saying that, you know, we need the teaching of the church to remind us what morality is and to give us guidelines and how to do so. Um, But also uh, some of the other things uh, he mentioned is, for one, that uh, sooner or later the government is going to uh, latch on to this and make it mandatory. And we see this already uh, a lot of the human aid that comes from the United States is linked to contraceptive practices mm-hmm. being used by the recipients. Mm-hmm. So the government is already forcing mm-hmm. people to do this, which is something that uh, Pope Paul VI warned was going to happen. We're going to run out of time, so uh, we're going to... Uh, Add some of this to our Immaculata Society extra bonus material. And I wish everybody a happy Independence Day. Join Gene Wilhelm next week for the roundup and have a happy Independence Day. <laughs>